There are texts in God's Word that are hard to read. There are definitely texts in God's Word that you would want to skip over. This is probably one of them. There's a a lot of places that you can encounter where what you read are horrible, sinful people doing horrible, sinful things. Uh, Probably on the top of the chart of horrifying is when you get to the end of the book of Judges and you read Judges 19 through 21 and you're like, wow, what details and horror of what was going on in that city and in that time. Genesis 34 follows along the same track where we have recorded for us a terrible event where sin is compounded by sin and is compounded by sin. And when you come to chapters like this, you can wonder, well, why is this recorded for God's people to read for all time? Why preserve something like this? Why is this text kept for us and of course we could certainly go to what the apostle paul reminds us of in second timothy three sixteen that all scripture is breathed out by god and it is profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness and as we look at chapter 34 uh, a couple of things i hope that you'll be thinking about is What is God trying to teach his people about how to handle life, particularly when terrible circumstances like this happen? And what is God ultimately trying to teach about himself? And one of the things I'm going to do in this lesson is avoid as much speculation as possible. It was interesting to read various writers' takes on who's in the wrong and why they're in the wrong and who who did the misstep and and who's to blame. And I'm going to stay out of all of that and just go with, here's what it says, and let's just run with what God reveals for us, and we'll walk that line as we, we look at this scene. In Genesis chapter 34, these first seven verses, I think we are fair to describe this sin as this defiling that happened. Chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob when she went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. But the sons of Jacob had come in from the field, and as soon as they had heard of it, and the men were outraged or indignant and were very angry because of the outrageous thing done in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. All right, let's let's start breaking down the scene as it's given for us. And and one of the things that I think is the intent of this chapter of keeping something like this in God's word is to set the table of what the land of Canaan is like. The land of Canaan is not a safe place. The land of Canaan is not a holy place. It's not a godly place. And one of the reasons why that's important is you will remember that God has made a promise to Abraham that ultimately his descendants are going to inhabit this land. 
And it is going to happen through conquest. We're going to read later on when you get to the book of Joshua, how God is going to lead his people in. And some people can have a problem with, well, how could God do that and go in and and bring that judgment and destroy the various Canaanites that are there? And one of the things that the scriptures not only specifically state, but here exemplify is that it is a land worthy of judgment. And God is going to bring judgment upon this Canaanite people for their wickedness. And you certainly see that picture here. Now, as the scene unfolds, we are given a a person here in verse 2. His name is Shechem. He is the son of Hamor. Hamor, apparently a very important person. He is described in verse 2 as the prince of the land. And after Shechem does this horrifying thing, now Shechem says, I want her to be my wife. And Hamer is on the way to meet Jacob to discuss the terms of this future arrangement of a marriage. Verse 7 tells us that in the process of doing that, it seems that Jacob's sons meet Hamor before Hamor gets to Jacob. And that kind of sets the curious triangle of how these events unfold in these discussions. That you have Jacob, he wants to talk to Hamor about what has happened. But it tells us in there in, in, in verse 5, he holds his peace. Now, people have condemned Jacob for that, and I'm not sure he should be. Because it says he held his peace until the brothers came. So it doesn't say that he was just going to let this pass, but he was waiting for his sons to come back so that they could handle this circumstance. But before that can happen, Hamor meets these sons as they're on the way. One of the things that I think is important to observe in the text that is clearly stated for us in a couple of ways in in verse 7 is that this act is clearly condemned. You know, sometimes people will come into the scriptures and go, you know, that everything in it that is recorded means it must be right and good. Now, most of the things in here are actually the opposite. It is humans doing horrible things to other humans. And this is certainly the case here. We are told in verse 7 that this is an outrageous thing that had been done. And we're told at the end of verse 7 that such a thing must not be done. And it's it's worth observing right here that... This event is pretty much what you would expect when you have a society where God is not the center. One of the unfortunate things that societies seem to miss is that they think if we remove God and remove morality from the system, then everybody will be on an equal playing field and everybody's going to be in this utopian do right. And over and over again, the scriptures go, actually, it's the opposite. When you take God out of the system, then unfortunately, what has the tendency to happen is the strong, the influential, the powerful, the rich, they do whatever they want to do. And unfortunately, in the process, then that leads to harm and oppression and horrifying sins like we read about in this very scene. It is the same thing that we see happening in our culture and society as it moves further and further from God. We're going to hear more horrible and horrifying things that people are going to do against other humans because God is no longer the center that puts us all on an equal level. And so when we take that away, it turns into might makes right and whoever has money wins and all of those things. And that's not the way God wanted those things to be. Sin only increases. When God is not at the center. 
So as you come into verse 7 and you have the, the sons of Jacob and they are encountering uh, Hamor at this point. And notice in verse 8. Now Hamor spoke with them saying, my, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Now a little bit of background that I think is important with this as well is that it wouldn't be out of place for the brothers to be working out the negotiation of how are we going to deal with this terrible sin that has happened and the consequences of it. You might think about the Song of Solomon where you have stated in there how the brothers are watchful over their sister and taking care of her and and making sure that that everything goes well by her. And that's what you see happening here. But, But Jacob is not here in this discussion. And I think that is important to note. And so Hamor comes to the sons of Jacob here and he says, here's my son who is who really longs for 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 uh, the, the daughter here. And so will you give her to him to be his wife? Notice what the plan is in verse nine. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves And you shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property. And Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great, uh, for as great of a bride price and a gift that you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. So I want you to get the setup here is they say, we've got a great plan on our hands. Why don't we go ahead since you have just moved into the land? Remember, Jacob is just finished with dealing with Esau and has now come into Canaan with all of his entourage, with all of his wealth. Uh, with all of his servants. And so they look at this and say, here's what we need to do. We need to just get along. And so let's enter Mary. Let's settle in the land. Let's acquire property. Let's buy and trade. And we'll just sort all this out. And we'll just become one big happy family with all of this. And we'll just intermarry and intersperse together in the land of Canaan. Not only that, you have uh, Shechem making the offer that I'll pay whatever price is necessary. Now, again, in our ears, that sounds wrong and weird and horrifying. But uh, back in, in those days, remember, every person of the family was considered extremely important for the work in terms of the land and in terms of taking care of the animals and, and working in, in the farm. And so if when a, your daughter got married, they were now going to be working for them and you were losing essentially a helper. And so what Shechem is saying is, I understand I'll pay whatever that dowry bride price needs to be for her to be my wife. Verse 13, though, is, is certainly interesting because verse 13 says what the sons of Jacob are going to do is they are going to answer deceitfully. Here's their answer in verse 14. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves 
and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And so they all went out to the gate of the city, listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out to the gate of his city. So you have this plan that is basically hatched up by Jacob's sons, and you're not told exactly what they're going to do, but they basically say, oh yeah, that sounds great for a deal, except for one condition. We can't possibly intermarry with you and become one people if you are uncircumcised. And so you need to be like us and become circumcised So, because that would be a disgraceful thing if you don't. And so you have Shechem and Hamor go back. And you might it's interesting how they propose this in verse 23 and say, let's go ahead and do this because if we do, then we will be able to enjoy everything that they have, their land and their animals and all that they have, which reminds us of what we saw earlier a few chapters in Genesis, how much God had blessed Jacob. That sometimes we think of Jacob walking into Canaan as if he had like two nickels to rub together and a couple people with him. That's not how it is. They're looking at this and going, this is a financial advantage to us. We want to go ahead and do this because look at their wealth, look at their people, look at their power, and we want to be a part of that. And thus you see in verse 24, with that, they go ahead and agree to this plan. But what they did not know is what happens in verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword And took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They also took the flocks and the herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all of their wealth, all of their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And isn't it interesting that that's the way the scene ends? And so you're left with these hanging questions, all right? So 
what is the text trying to tell us? Is, is Jacob right in what he's saying? Were the brothers right in what they did? And, and how are you supposed to see what God is explaining in all of this defilement that, that has happened in, 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 this, in this picture? I want us to notice that how this scene unfolds is certainly horrifying, that Simeon and Levi now take it upon themselves to go about and carry out this, this plan. Now, the first four sons of Jacob were by Leah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And we're told at the beginning, Dinah, the only daughter given to Jacob, is also from Leah. So there's a little bit extra of these brothers wanting to do something on Dinah's behalf. But I want you to notice what it says that they did. In verse 25, it says, they killed all the men. And in verse 26, they killed Hamor and Shechem. And then we're told a little bit later that they captured the, the women and the wives and the children. In verse 29 and in verse 28, we're told that they take the flocks and the herds and the donkeys and everything that was in the city and also in the field. And then in verse 29, you're told that they took the wealth as well, all the little ones, everything that was in the house, and they captured and plundered everything. In all of that. And when Jacob then challenges Simeon and Levi and says, you know, what have you done here? Here's their defense. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And so you're left to wonder, all right, is God giving his stamp of approval? Or is he saying this was a horrifying act? I think it is interesting to think about this response that Jacob has and the response that these two sons give. From Jacob's perspective in verse 39, he says, you're going to get us all killed essentially by doing this. Everybody in the land is going to rise up and completely wipe us out for doing something like, like you've done. And that's an understandable response. I want us to think about, you just wiped out a whole city over, over, over this rather than only the offenders who had done the wrong. A whole city goes down over this. But their response is a defense that says, well, aren't we right to do something? We should do something, right? So I want to talk about those two responses for a minute. And I think you get a good sense of what God's stance is on this. When you listen to Jacob at the end of his life, and he starts passing out the, the blessings at the very end. You know, as you, we've, we've talked about and we've looked at in some of our Sunday night lessons, when we looked at how Isaac was going to bless Jacob and Esau and how Jacob stole that blessing from Esau, that this was a very important thing. And I want you to listen to what Jacob says when he blesses Simeon and Levi. In Genesis 49 and verse 5, he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. What do you think Jacob thinks about what they've done in this action? There's not a blessing here. This is an outright curse against Simeon and Levi. In fact, 
what he says there at the end, and I will scatter them in Israel. Have you ever noticed when you're looking at the 12 tribes of Israel in your map that you can't really find Simeon? And sometimes a map will show a teeny little circle inside of Judah. Because this is what happened, is the curse comes to fruition and they don't have some massive property that you're going to look on your map and go, oh yeah, there's big old Simeon right there, like you see Judah or Benjamin or any of those other other tribes. And here's the reason why, is Jacob says what they did was wrong, what they did was out of anger. And he says, better that I not be even joined to their company And notice how it describes in their anger, they killed men and in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. And I want you to see that Simeon and Levi's response to that is, well, we had to do something, right? And I think one of the big messages that chapter 34 has for us in in recording this horrifying, clearly condemned sin and how they respond is what you are seeing Jacob observe with them is your anger is right. What happened was a sin, but that doesn't make what they did right. And I think that is something for us to think about because I think this becomes a great challenge is that sometimes we can think that any response is right if our anger is right. Justice needs to happen. And so therefore I'm vindicated, I'm justified to give whatever response I want because somebody has done something wrong. I've been horribly sinned against and that gives me the right to do whatever I want to do. And I think what you see Jacob saying here is the response of these two brothers was excessive and cruel. They do not simply hold Shechem in justice. They destroy a whole city and the women and the children and the animals and their wealth and they plunder them. It is a massive reaction. They take out their wrath on the men by killing them. Take out their wrath on the women by capturing them. They take out their wrath on the children and capture them. They take out their wrath on the animals, it says, by cruelly mistreating them. Taking out their wrath by taking wealth and property. Their response is clearly being pictured as sinful And condemned that even though Dinah had been sinned against, their response to that sin was also a sin. And I think the way to ultimately look at this is that there is a point in which we're no longer seeking justice, but seeking vengeance. And that's what this is what has happened here. Is that Jacob appears to be wanting to have a measured response. It tells us there in the beginning of this in in, in verse 5 that he held his peace until his sons came. He's waiting to talk to them so that there can be a measured response and not that there's going to be vengeance. Now, I want you to think about contextually where we are in Genesis. What did Jacob think was going to happen to him In chapter 33, when he met Esau, 
He's expecting vengeance. He did Esau wrong. He is absolutely fearful for his life. Remember, he is separating camps, separating people. He's sending gifts like crazy. He's putting himself in the back. He's putting his favored family as far away as possible. He fully expects for Esau to vent all of his wrath on him. And amazingly, when you read chapter 33, it doesn't happen. They actually reconcile. They actually work it out. Esau actually hugs him and cries and is weeping. And it becomes this this wonderful reconciliation and reunion. And now the very next scene is another scene of vengeance and another scene of wrath. And I think you see there's a reason for Jacob's measured response and why Jacob goes about this path of trying to do what is the right thing for justice in this circumstance, rather than just simply vengeance. Now, the reason why I think this is really important to talk about is I feel like one of the things that we see happening in our culture more and more is that the belief that a person can do an evil act and that evil act is justified because of some kind of mistreatment in their life. You might have seen this. Somebody does some terrible thing, some act of violence, some act of terrorism, some act of shooting or something like that. And what usually unfolds over time is, well, they had something bad happen to them. They were mistreated. And it's almost as if to say, so this explains everything and this makes it okay. They were right in their response because they were sinned against. And I want us to see that that's not what God says. That we're not right to do whatever we feel like because we've been wronged. We don't have a right to go, well, I guess I can kill or steal or yell or scream or do whatever it is that we think is a justified response because we have been sinned against because this is vengeance. It's not justice. And vengeance is always a sin. Now, I want us to think about for a minute what God would have wanted in terms of justice for this terrible chapter and what has happened as as we read it. Because we know that God wanted justice. We know that God gave them a system of laws so that certain things would be done so that there would be a justice that would take place. One of the things that I think is important to remember is that you have God setting forward in various places in scriptures, what we often call an eye for an eye. I want to read it to you and then think about what God means by this. He codifies it in Exodus 21 and verse 23, where God says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, Unfortunately, just like in Jesus' day, this has been misused and misapplied, which Jesus had to even talk about. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, because what people have done with this is, so if you do something to me, I get to do something back to you. And that's not what the principle is of personal vengeance. That What God was teaching was that A punishment of justice needs to fit the crime. If there's going to be a just reaction, then the punishment is not supposed to be greater than the crime. 
and the punishment's not supposed to be lesser. That's what eye for an eye means, that the punishment needs to fit the offense so that whatever is done, when it would be brought before the judges and their system that that Moses would be put into place and those determinations and decrees were made, it would be right and fair and it would not be excessive and it would not be too little. And I want you to think about even in our day and time, how many times do we see that problem where you hear about it and you go, wow, that was really excessive. That doesn't seem right. That's not justice because that was like over the top. That was too much or the opposite. Somebody does something and you go, that was too lenient. How can that only be a couple of years for what this was? And what God was trying to put forward is that shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be too lenient and it shouldn't be excessive. It should be right down the middle, eye for an eye. And that's what the picture is that, that, that God was giving. And I want us to think about chapter 34. And I want you to think about this scene. So God says the punishment needs to fit the crime. Do you think Simeon and Levi did that? I think that is such an interesting thing to think about is as much as they bring the defense in verse 31 to say, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Were all the men of the city worthy of a punishment for what? had happened by Shechem and Hamor? And were the women of the city and the children, were they a part of that? This is vengeance. This is why Jacob says, what you have done is going to make me a stink in the land because you have gone past justice and have moved well into vengeance. Now, one other thought in terms of this picture that's given to us. Sometimes what happens is that justice is not served. And I think sometimes that's the hardest thing to deal with. And I suppose that's where even these boys may be even coming from. Is they need to see some form of justice. Something needs to happen. And when we don't see justice, that's when we want to take matters into our hands. That's when I think we are tempted the most to want to respond. Somebody's not going to do something about it, so I need to do something about it. I need to be the one to enact the anger, enact the vengeance. I'm going to be the punisher. I'm going to do something about it. So since we know that the Apostle Paul tells us, don't respond with evil. Don't respond with vengeance. For Romans chapter 12, you have the Apostle Paul saying that vengeance belongs to God. He will repay. So what are we supposed to do when justice isn't served? And there's a lot of places I could go, but for the sake of time, I'm going to use a text that we usually use for a number of other things as the answer to that. Listen to Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Here is Isaiah prophesying about what this future king and kingdom will be like. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. God promised that in Christ's kingdom, justice and righteousness would ultimately be upheld. And this becomes our great hope is that there is a day appointed when every single person has to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we are told that there is not a single action that is hidden from the sight of God. And those books will be open and those accounts will be put forward. And God makes a promise that he will bring justice for every single wrong. And that is the hope that the Christian has. Because unfortunately, in most cultures and in most societies, you go, I don't see justice being served. And God says, I will bring justice if justice is not served. But we cannot defile ourselves by having a defiled, sinful response when someone sins against us. One of the hardest things that we can do is to not repay evil for evil. One of the hardest things that we have is when somebody does wrong, I want to do wrong 10 times over. You might remember Cain talked that way and a later descendant of his Lamech talked that way. Somebody harms me, I will harm them seven times, is what he said. And that seems to be our human nature. We're going to get justice. We're going to have vengeance. We're going to do it. And God says to us, you let me take care of that. And I would submit to you as we close. Who's going to do a better job at balancing the scales of vengeance and justice and wrath? Us or God? Who will do a better job at righting the wrong that's been done against you? God will. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we can have so many things happen in our lives that are horrifying sins. We can be sinned against by so many people on small levels and on deep levels. Levels that forever hurt us and change us. And Lord, I pray that first of all, you would give all of us a hope to know that you see all wrongs. And that you've promised to make things right. Lord, thank you for being a righteous and just God. That all things are before your eyes. And we know that no wickedness is getting out of your sight. But that you will put all things to right. And Lord, I pray that you would help us in a way that we would not take vengeance. 
that as your Apostle Paul wrote, that we would leave room for you to do your work and that we would never avenge ourselves. Lord, help us to have that mind. Help us to be able to control our anger in such a way so that we would remain controlled and right before you. Lord, I pray that we would live our lives in a way that is glorifying to you, even in the face of sin, even when we have been horrifyingly wronged, even when we have suffered such horrifying things in our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would handle those things properly and rightly. And Lord, we pray that there would be justice, that there would be justice not only in the final day, but we pray for justice in our culture and in our society. Lord, we know the reason you have given us governments is that you would protect the innocent and punish the evildoer. We pray that that would be the case. We pray that governments would uphold what is right and true according to your laws so that the innocent could look to you and look to the law and find justice in that way. But Lord, even when we don't experience what is right and just, we pray that we would find our comfort in knowing that you will write these things in the final day. In Jesus' name, amen. It's quite a scene that's given to us, but I think an important reminder that it is not up to us to try to right the wrongs of this world, but leave those things to God. We encourage you to turn away from sin this very day, and if we can help you in any way to follow the Lord your God with all of your heart and any struggles that you have and any difficulties in your life, We would love to help you in that pursuit of walking with God. Would you let us know? You can come forward now while we stand and while we sing.